Good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas again. It's great to see you all here this morning. Please take your Bible and find Isaiah 9 this morning. We'll be preaching from Isaiah 9, and we're going to focus in on verse 6 and even closer on the first two phrases of verse 6. Isaiah 9, chapter, excuse me, Isaiah 9, verse 6. The title of the message this morning is Hope, the Reason for the Season. I want to begin by reading this well known favorite verse at Christmas time. Isaiah 9, verse 6 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. From the ESV version. So this year, Christmas Eve falls on a Lord's Day. And by now, most of you have been enjoying the traditional Christmas American festivities that go along with the season, one of which includes watching your favorite Christmas movies, right? As for me and my family, we always watch my personal favorite, A Christmas Carol. How many of you watched that already this year? At least some version of it. Most of you know that before there were countless versions of it filmed, for many years, People only knew the book. It was a book written by Charles Dickens in 1843. A Christmas Carol is a fictional novel about the transformation of a surly, bitter, greedy old man named Ebenezer Scrooge. The story opens up on Christmas Eve with the death of Scrooge's only friend and partner, Jacob Marley. Whoa, that's different. Different, different Marley. <laughs> Charles Dickens wrote in the book. Now, I, I looked up the book. I just didn't watch the movie and copy this down, okay? Dickens wrote in the book, Scrooge was his sole executor, his sole administrator, his sole friend, and his sole mourner. For the next seven years after Jacob Marley's, poorly attended funeral. Scrooge continued to live his life only with one thing on his mind, business. His love of money and hate for his fellow man caused him to become the city's most despised man. And as far as Scrooge was concerned, that's the way he liked it. Until one night, his world came crashing down when he experienced a supernatural episode. Now, let me just say, just to be clear, as much as we love this story, do not get your theology from this story, okay? Children, there are are no such thing as ghosts haunting you at night. So you don't have to be afraid and look under the bed to find the boogeyman. The Bible says to, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord for the believer, right? And then for the unbeliever, it is appointed. Unto man once to die, and then what? The Bible does not teach that after man dies that his soul or spirit lingers in some creepy old broken down house. 
Now that's clear. The spirit of his old friend, Jacob Marley, paid him a visit, remember? Now Scrooge recognized him immediately. He recognized that he was wrapped in chains, which were bound to several money boxes that he had to drag around wherever he went. When Scrooge asked him why, Marley responded with this, and I quote, I wear the chain I forged in life. I made it link by link and yard by yard. Would you know the weight and the length of the chain you bear yourself? It was as heavy and as long as this seven Christmas Eves ago. You have labored on it since. It is a ponderous chain. Scrooge then immediately felt the shock of reality. For a split second, he knew that he was doomed for the same end. But then Jacob Marley says this. I am here tonight to warn you that you have a chance and hope of escaping my fate. In some strange way, when I watch A Christmas Carol every year, Jacob's warning to Scrooge reminds me of the same warning the evangelical prophet Isaiah gave to God's people. Jacob came to deliver a message of hope, of redemption, to a lost, troubled old man. In a similar way, Isaiah was sent by Yahweh to preach a message of hope to a wayward, idolatrous nation. At the time Isaiah was written, Israel was in a place of spiritual ruin. In other words, they were in a place of hopelessness. After the time of the patriarchs, as you remember, in the book of Judges, Israel demands a king, right? You can read about that in 1 Samuel 8. Saul messes it up. He's dethroned. David, King David, a man after God's own heart, is anointed, crowned, and then Israel prospers under his leadership like None other time in history. But it was David's sin that put Israel on a trajectory towards spiritual desolation. Solomon, even in all of his wisdom, was distracted by the pleasures of this world. And then it kept going downhill from there. Eventually, Israel split after the death of Solomon. Judah became the southern kingdom. Israel became the northern kingdom. 1 Kings 12 to 14. Eventually, if you know, know or remember any of your Old Testament history, what happened was Israel fell to Assyria and Judah fell to Babylon. Every Hebrew, every Hebrew went into exile until Cyrus, the Persian king, allowed the Jews to return and build the temple in 538 B.C. Now, this history is important because the prophet Isaiah ministered to Judah before it fell to Babylon. In other words, this prophetic book 
that we all love so much, especially during Christmas time. It was written in the pre-exilic era, about a hundred years before God used the Babylonians as a human instrument to judge the southern kingdom of Judah. So I'm taking you back to the B.C. days. Start, start taking your mind back to a time when Judah was about ready to be smashed. A time when Judah was about to collapse. A time when Judah was about to be besieged. God sends Isaiah to tell them about this. To warn them. But, in a similar way, like Jacob Marley, Isaiah is not just sent to warn them of the coming doom. He's sent to give them hope. Chapter 1, Isaiah details the sins of Judah. Chapter 1, verse 4, they have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from Him. Chapters 2 to 5, they they comprise of a single connected discourse of sin and judgment. Isaiah 2, verse 19 says, Men will go into the caves and the rocks and through the holes of the ground before the terror of the Lord. But then we get to Isaiah 4. And for the first time in this prophecy, we see a glimmer of hope. It says, In that day, the branch of the Lord, which is a messianic title, will be beautiful and glorious when the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion. Then we get into some more warning. Isaiah 5, perhaps the most striking and sobering part of the whole book. Maybe you've heard this quoted before. Isaiah 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who do that. And in chapter 7, what do we see? Another glimmer of hope. You know the verse. Verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and she will call him Emmanuel. And then at verse 17 of chapter 7. God says that Assyria will come in to judge them. Chapter 8, more warning. Yahweh promises that he will destroy the wealth of Damascus and that they will be carried away by the king of Assyria. See the pattern? Get to chapter 9 which is where we're focusing our attention this morning. Chapter 9 begins with a message of hope for God's people whose anguish will intensify because of their sin. At at the time this was written, King Ahaz, who was ruling Judah, is a corrupt king. He is idolatrous. You can go back to 
2 Kings 16 and see his behavior. He engaged in child sacrifice. He desecrated the temple. This is the man who is in charge of God's people. So the nation at this time is in a place of distress and war and it's about to get worse. They are fearful because Isaiah is prophesying the desolation of their nation and subsequent captivity. But though there is much to fear and much to dread, there is also much to look forward to. Isaiah 9, verse 1. But there will be no more gloom. Later, he shall make it glorious. Verse 2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence and with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice, they will divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. You know what Isaiah is saying here? That the Lord will free national Israel from bondage? He will free them from Assyria, from Babylon, and from every other foreign power that has ever oppressed her. We get to Isaiah 9, 6. Now, you need to view this popular, favorite, seasonal text from the perspective of a Jew living in pre-exilic Judah. Because that's who Isaiah was writing to. And so that begs the question, since we live 2,700 years apart from this point in history, what can you, a Christian living in 21st century America, learn from this ancient prophecy? It's simply this. By God's amazing grace... My Gentile friends, you have been grafted in to God's chosen people. And because of that truth alone, you can share in the same hope the nation of Israel was given. That's what Christmas is all about. Hope. The indescribable hope that came in the form of a child The child, the anointed one, the Messiah, who was sent into the world by God, not only to save souls. That was Act 1. That was the first advent. When he comes again, he is going to rule. He is going to rule and establish perfect peace and righteousness. So during the Christmas season, we are reminded of that hope. We are reminded not simply of the nativity story. That's elementary. That's Sunday school. Christmas cannot even center around the baby in the manger. That's one little snippet of our faith. 
It had to happen, and it's essential. But that's not the only hope we have. Right? We look forward to the kingdom. And the one who sits on the throne was he who was born in that manger 2,000 years ago. So this Christmas, let's not just look back. Let's just not look back to Luke 2, to Isaiah. Let's allow Isaiah to catapult us towards our future hope. You guys with me? We live in between the first and second coming. Isaiah's audience looked forward to his first coming, but now both believing Jews and Gentiles each day live with the hope of the return of the king who will reign. I want to camp out on this this morning. Because I know, for those of you that made it this morning, you've lost the joy of being a Christian. You, You find yourself stuck in a season of discouragement, of doubt, of defeat, or maybe even depression. Because you've lost sight of the ultimate purpose and hope there is in believing in Christ. Perhaps you see the spiritual, moral, political climate of our nation plummet. And you're losing hope. Because your mind is set on the things below rather than the things above. Whatever the case, what we are going to learn by doing a very brief study of Isaiah 9-6 is that we're not the only ones who have have ever had to battle hopelessness. We're not the only ones that have experienced seasons of intense grief and coming judgment. Israel did. And just as Israel lived with the hope of the coming Messiah during their darkest years, I know that we can live life in this decaying world with greater hope. I'll go further. Our hope is even more sure. Our hope is more sure than it was for the Jews because, number one, the Messiah did come. Fulfilling the first part of verse 6. And number two, since he came the first time, our hope is more sure because we can count on him to come for the second time. And establish a kingdom. A kingdom of perfect peace. Justice. Righteousness. Holiness. Now you know that I love my country. I have sworn to defend and support my country against all enemies. I'll die for my country. But as much as I love this country, I look forward to the kingdom more than I love my country. Why? Because of this text. 
because what the Bible says is coming. That's where my hope is. My hope isn't in Donald Trump. Some of you are saying amen to that. My hope isn't in anyone else but the king. So that's what I want to do this morning. I want to encourage you with this text on this Christmas Eve by giving you two reasons why we can live our lives with a greater hope. Number one, because as believers, our hope is sure because he came. Number two, as believers, our hope is sure because he's coming. Very simple. Look at the first reason why we can live our lives with a greater hope. Isaiah 9, verse 6 says, For to us a child is born. For us, for to us a child is born. Now, you may have a different translation. How many, how many of, of you have a translation that says something different? Some of your Bibles say a child will be born, right? Well, you know that I am a huge NASB fan. In fact, that's what Paul and the Apostles used. No, I'm but I went with the ESV here because it's better. It captures the literalness of the Hebrew language, and it's significant. Now, you know, if I'm going to veer from my precious NASB, it's got to be very good for a good reason. Before we get to that, this prophecy was written about 700 years before Christ. And as we read this first phrase of this awesome prophecy, prophecy, we we need to answer three interpretive questions. Okay, so I'm putting on my teaching hat for a minute. I'm trying to teach you how to interpret the Bible the best way. Who is the us? Who is it? It's the nation of Israel, right? It's God's chosen covenant people. Now, if you've heard me preach more than a few times, you've probably heard me say this. The Old, Old Testament was not written to us. The Old Testament was not written to the church. Some parts, some narratives, some of his promises apply to us. Some don't. And the truths about the character of God in the Old Testament are true, always. They educate us, they edify us. But don't forget that Isaiah was writing to a nation on the brink of what? Exile. Judgment. So when we read this prophecy, keep in mind the original audience. The Jews were the ones that were promised this child. Even Jesus and Paul always had Israel as the priority. Now, some of you may, may not have read this before. Matthew fifteen twenty four. This is Jesus speaking. Listen to this. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Have you read that before? Jesus himself says that he was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. He's talking about the nation of Israel. Romans 1.16, you know that one. The Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the who first, the Jew first, and then to the Gentiles. Now, obviously, this simply implies that in fulfillment of Messianic prophecies, the Jews were the priority. But that doesn't mean they were the only ones who benefit from 
Christ's work, right? That leads us to the second interpretive question that we need to briefly touch on. Who was the child? There has been plenty of ink, I'm sure plenty of punches thrown, <laughs> with regard to the debate on this. Some have, some have suggested that this child is Hezekiah, who will come to reign after Ahaz. Some have suggested that he's just a, a, a simple human warrior. And in fact, many Jews believe this today. Many of you know that I've been in the Army chaplaincy before I was in the Air Force. The Air Force was finally desperate enough to take me. It was a good decision to switch. But before then, I was in the Army chaplaincy for four years. And the best thing about that experience was being able to work with a Jewish rabbi. Now, very few people. I mean, how many of you have ever sat down for hours at a time and talked to a a legitimate, ordained, trained Jewish rabbi? It was a very unique opportunity. And, and, And he wasn't like a mean you know, ultra-conservative Orthodox Jewish rabbi who didn't like Gentiles. He, he, he was a fairly liberal rabbi, and he was very kind, and he was very um, caring and, and very open to discussion. And so I remember, um, you know me, so I'm not afraid to ask the hard question usually, right? So, so we had some downtime, and I really wanted to know, how, how does a Jew, what do they do with Isaiah 53? What do they do with Isaiah 7 and 9? I mean, to us, it's just so clear. So I really wanted to understand how he deals with those things. And and so I asked him about this text. I said, how do you not view Jesus as the fulfillment of Isaiah 9-6? And he said simply, well, that child is just a human military leader. To which my follow-up question would be, well, what about all the names he's given? Mighty God. Well, if you do some research, you'll see that the translation of that, El Gabor, could be translated as Mighty Warrior. Then I said, well, what about Everlasting Father? How can a man be Everlasting Father? And you know what? He said, I can't give you a theological answer. I can only give you a historical answer. So all that to say is that there are people who don't don't see Jesus here. But he is. To us who have the Spirit of God, he's in there and it's bright red. I don't think I have to work very hard to convince this audience, right? The child is not a human king. He's not a mighty Goliath-like soldier. This child, Isaiah, refers to as none other than Jesus. None other than Jesus of Nazareth, who was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago. One commentator puts it this way. In the final analysis, the language of verse 6 can apply only to the one who is God incarnate. This oracle points directly to the coming of the Messiah, the great son of David, true light. So then verse chapter 9, verse 6 of Isaiah is referring to the same child 
same child, previously mentioned two chapters before. Isaiah 7, verse 14. A virgin will be with child and bear a son. She will call him Emmanuel, which you know God, it means God with us. So Isaiah is saying that God himself will come to rule, making right what men made wrong. Now think about this for a second. Upon hearing this, what greater hope would there be to a nation drowning in a cesspool of sin and bracing for a physical, literal military siege, forcing them to go into exile? Can you see how much hope this would give somebody in that position? It's amazing. Lastly, let me ask this question. Should this verb be rendered in the future or past tense? Since I'm already running out of time, let me just put it out there. The future tense, there's, not, there's no future tense in the Hebrew here. Instead of reading, child will be born, it is more literal to read, child is born. And this is amazing here. Try, try to stay with me. The author views the action of this verb as a whole and already complete, though it has not happened yet. Isaiah intended to communicate that this future event is as undoubtedly certain to the degree that his original readers could think of this prediction as though it's already accomplished. In other words, from God's infinite perspective, this child, though he already has not, though he has not come yet, has already come. This reality means that nothing can stop this child from doing God's will. That's the implication. Think about the nativity story. Think about the details of that story. Leading up to the birth. Even the highest government, government official could not stop Jesus from being born. Remember? Herod tried to kill all the boys. But he failed. Do you think that was just an accident? Do you think that he just didn't have a good enough plan? No. It's because Yahweh said 700 years before that he's already here. Doesn't that blow your mind? That's the kind of language Isaiah uses with regard to Messianic prophecy. It's, it's in real time, hasn't happened yet, but in God's mind it has. And, th- and that should astonish us and that should encourage us because that means that no, no matter what happens in human history, according to men's will, Christ will do what God has planned for him to do. Now, draw your attention quickly to the second phrase in verse 6. To us a son is given. To us, a son is given. This line simply emphasizes the first line. But yet now another simple interpretive question is presented. Given by whom? Who gives this son? 
We'll note again that this is not in the future tense in the Hebrew. This grammatical difference is significant because this child is already given. And this child is given by Yahweh himself. Even though this is a future event in real time, Isaiah is speaking as though this gift has already been given. Now, this is a horrible illustration, but it might help someone. You know, I'm getting old enough now where I have to have a will. It's kind of weird. But I have a house, I have some stuff, and I have children most importantly. So I've been encouraged by lots of folks to get a will, Heitman, because if something happens to your wife, your kids better be taken care of. And so when I went to get a will, I felt all the information. My children get this. What child gets this? Blah, blah, blah. You guys, most of you have probably been down that road. Well, so say, for example, I'm leaving my house to my oldest son. You see, now it's already given to him when I'm gone, but in real time, he hasn't obtained it. You see? So, so Isaiah is saying, look, God is going to give you this son. It's written down. It's going to happen. But you're not going to actually get it until this, this time. Does that make sense? So that is a horrible, fallible, finite illustration to help us understand the language here. Again, this is encouraging because this language informs us that God is not reacting to human events as they occur. Nor is he just sitting on the sidelines just watching the affairs of the sinful world unfold. That's theism. But our God is 100% sovereign, isn't he? Not only in the menial affairs of individual lives, but he has planned every single detail of redemptive history. His redemptive plan was set in motion in eternity past. And that plan is made known to us, made known to us through his word. And you know what the word tells us? That he planned to save his people through the birth of a humble child. Acts 1. Now, I don't think we can fully comprehend what this would have meant to the citizens of Judah. We're so far removed. We're so steeped in our American tradition on Christmas time. Not only would a child be born, he would be given by the God whom they abandoned. And because of the immediate context, they knew that the child would be God himself. God would give the gift of himself which is the ultimate act of love for a people who rejected him. So on Christmas Eve, brothers and sisters, be reminded that by God's grace, not because we did anything, not because we deserve it, we have been made partakers of this wonderful promise. At Christmas time, we're reminded 
of the unshakable hope that we have in this child who was born 2,000 years ago. But this child was given. He was born. He grew up. He died. He rose again. He ascended. And he's coming back, right? Our, as believers, our hope is sure because he came. Second, at Christmas time, your hope is more sure because he's coming. Look at the second phrase in Isaiah 9, verse 6. Third, rather, excuse me. And the government shall be on his shoulder. The government shall be on his shoulder. With this phrase, the prophet leaps ahead to the kingdom age which this child sits on. This child is going to rule in this kingdom on the Davidic throne. We know that God promised David that his throne would be established forever, and this is literally literally fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who will one day reign from Jerusalem. This kingdom is a government, which is regarded as a burden to be borne on the back or the shoulders. Because the welfare of a nation is a burden for any leader to carry. And as Christ rules, he will bear the responsibility to bring about all that God has promised. But unlike past human kings, past human rulers who were frail, weak, and fallible, King Jesus, as we see in the titles he's given, which we don't have time to unpack this morning, Jesus will be the all-wise, all-powerful, all-benevolent, peaceful father to his subjects. Now, you probably don't think of sweet, dear baby Jesus as a ruler, do you? But this is how Isaiah and the rest of Scripture portrays the Messiah. Kingly language. And so, if we're going to be biblical, we have to think more in terms of the Messiah as a king, a ruler who will reign, because that's the picture that the Old Testament paints for us. But not only do we see Jesus portrayed as king in the Old Testament, where else do we see him portrayed as king? At his birth. The wise men came from an orient land, and they came and they knelt. They paid homage to the king. So at Christmas time, we must remember that Jesus was born a king. And although it may not, it, it may be uncommon for contemporary Christians and many secret-sensitive churches to refrain from referring to Jesus Christ as king. Sovereign King. Some of our favorite Christmas carols do highlight this high theology. I think it was last week when we sung, O come, all ye faithful. Joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. Come and behold him, 
born the king of angels. King. So, to, to conclude here, have you come this morning to marvel and pay homage to the king? We simply don't just set up a nativity scene and sing happy birthday Jesus. At Christmas time, we remember that our God is a God of hope. We can be more sure of our future hope because he came in fulfillment of Isaiah 9-6. And he will come again in complete fulfillment of Isaiah 9-6 to establish a kingdom where he will reign as a perfect king. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together in your word. Thank you that you've given us such great hope. So many of us may be discouraged, even depressed, or just confused, maybe not even saved. And so no wonder if we're depressed and not even saved, what hope would we have? What, what, is, what is there, what purpose is there in our life if there is no hope? And so for those of us who come who do not properly view you as king, may we repent. May we seek your face. May we pay homage to you. May we worship you and love you and submit to you as a subject should do for his or her king. Christ was born the king of angels. He was born the king of men. king who would give himself so that we may be saved eternally. A king that will come again to rule eternally. Thank you, Lord, for these reminders. Thank you for revealing these things to us. May we leave today and fellowship around this food and marvel and be encouraged and inflamed because of the hope that we have through faith in Christ. In Jesus' name.